0: Hi everyone and welcome back to Racing Lives. My name is Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot, and in this podcast I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today is known in every motorsport paddock there is, having worked in Formula One, touring cars, endurance racing and rallying, and many more, I'm sure, throughout her incredible career. She counts roles such as TV presenter, pit lane reporter, media trainer, event host, racing driver, and team PR as part of her extensive experience. She's as approachable and funny as she is professional and efficient, with a reputation for a calm and capable approach which always guarantees a good workday when collaborating with her. My guest today is the utterly brilliant Louise Goodman.
2: Thank you very much for a lovely introduction. Thank you. I wrote it myself, but you did all the work. <laughs> That's very kind of you.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, listen, Louise, the more I do these, the more I realise it's a lot easier if we just start at the beginning. So if you don't mind, would you could you tell me where and when your racing life actually begun?
2: As a kid, I loved things with wheels and an engine. I just, you know, one of my greatest joys is a. Uh, As a child and a relatively small child, was was being allowed to park the car in the garage when my dad got home. And and I have great memories of you know going around picnic areas in the new forest, sitting on my dad's knee, you know, with me doing the steering wheel and and him doing the pedals. So don't ask me where that came from. And there was no sort of history of of motor racing or anything like that in my family, but I just love that. You know, a, a lot of my misspent youth was misspent on the back of motorbikes and but I never set out to, to work in racing. I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do career-wise. I sort of fell into journalism, which in hindsight was a good thing for me because I'd always loved English was one of my best subjects at school. History was one of my favourite subjects at school. So I, I kind of fell into journalism through family or f- friends of mine who's, um, they had a business building offshore powerboats. And I started working for a small publishing company on uh, a magazine called Powerboat and Water Skiing Magazine. So and through that, I, I met connections in the motor racing world, I, I met up with a guy called Tony Jardine who was just setting up his own PR company. He'd been working in, in motorsport for, for quite a while, setting up his own company and was looking for somebody to go and work with him. I was looking for another job and um, because I was planning to go away travelling. Um, so I was working evenings in a restaurant, so I wanted a sort of easier job than editing the magazine. And Tony offered me a job. So I went to work for him. And that really was my entree into into the world of of motorsport. And it kind of went on from there. You know, Tony and I together, we sort of launched Camel um, as a sponsor into Formula One. When they sponsored the Lotus team, I was uh, assigned as the the press officer when we got the BP contract. I was assigned as the press officer for the Leighton House team um, who BP was sponsoring. And then I was approached by Eddie Jordan to go and be his, his press officer at, at Jordan. Um, and from there, the, the opportunity came from, from ITV. So I always sort of say that my career has been a set of happy circumstance, really. You know, as I said, I never set out to work in this world, but it, it's a world that, that suits me wholly and has given me a, a very enjoyable career and life as well. What about motorsport itself? Were you always
0: a fan? Or did that happen when it came to find you effectively?
2: It sort of happened when it came to find me. I mean, I was aware of motorsport. I grew up in a town in Hampshire called Allsford, which is where Derek Warwick comes from. And I, as a child walking to school, I would walk past Warwick Trailers, the family business, um, where there was a really sexy Mark II 4 Capri that was always parked outside that I lusted after. Uh, and I was aware of, of Derek. You know, he was always in the local paper. He was stock car racing at the time. It was before he got into Formula One. So I was aware of motorsport. Some of my friends, you know, my mates all liked motorbikes and cars. A couple of them did some sort of amateur racing. You know, I can remember going to the the British Grand Prix. Don't ask me what year it was. It was at Brands Hatch. It would have been in the mid early mid eighties. You know, my first experience of of going to a Grand Prix. So I liked it. It was it was that whole wheels and engine thing. It it stirred something in me. But uh, you know. That was that was it. I had no particular knowledge of it, no family history of it, which I think is very often the way that, that that people get into it. I suppose also the other influence was James Hunt, who was a, you know, when I was a small kid, he was this kind of sexy dude who was all over the television. Him and Barry Sheen were big stars at the time and they would appear on light entertainment shows. And you know so, I, you know, I'd sit down and watch the watch James Hunt racing at the Monaco Grand Prix and, and that kind of thing. Um, So that was there in the in the background as well. But no, no, it's not as if, you know, I come across so many people now who from year dot, their burning ambition has been to work in motorsport, to work in Formula One. And I feel a bit guilty because, uh, you know, I I have had what to me seemed like a very easy entree um, and a lucky entree into into a sport and into a working life that so many people yearn for and strive so hard to get into. And I feel to a certain extent like it fell into my lap. I know you have to be able to deliver the goods to 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 progress um, in, in any line of business, but I guess particularly in a competitive area um, like motorsport. But um, yeah, I, I've been presented with opportunities, which I'm very grateful for.
0: And looking from the outside, I, th- I think I can safely say you've not wasted any of them. So. I don't think you should feel too guilty <laughs>
2: <laughs> well I hope not I know my my former partner um, John Boy used to sort of when I said I've been very lucky he, he you know he, he'd rail against me and say it's not down to luck you know you've got to be able to do the job you do a good job you've always done it well that's why people want you to do it so uh, but it sounds a little bit conceited to say that yourself doesn't it
0: <laughs> yeah let everyone else say it we're, we're all here waiting <laughs> to say it. it's completely fine Actually, talking about looking on the outside, what would you say the biggest misconception about your job has been?
2: I think you know people have a perception, and and rightly so, because that's how the the sport portrays itself. That Formula One is very glamorous. It's a very um, you know glamorous arena to work in um, and and it is a very glamorous sport but when you're working in it it's far more glamorous if you're sitting upstairs in the paddock club with a glass of champagne watching the race you know when you're actually working in the sport it's it's long hours it takes dedication it, it's I've always described it as a, as a way of life rather than a job because it takes up a lot of your time and you you've got to I think love motorsport to be prepared to give up the time and put in the effort in order to do the job properly but you can't be a fan. You're not there to, to fanboy or fangirl, the drivers, you know, you, you've got to earn people's respect for for whatever job it is that you're doing. And, and you've got to be very professional. So I think that is probably the, the biggest misconception is that, you know, it, it's very, very glamorous. I mean, there are, you know, times it's not, I can remember many years ago at the Canadian Grand Prix, it was absolutely lobbing it down with rain. I was, you know, smothered in a in a a, and boys because when i first started working in formula one there are so few girls on the teams that we we never got female clothing we always had to adapt the the boys team gear So I was smothered in this great big boy's rather ugly anorak with a bundle of of paper press releases. Um, This is sort of pre the electronic age, walking up through the paddock to the media centre to hand those out to the journalists, Um, alongside a lady called Annie Bradshaw, who everybody in the the paddock will know was was sort of the doyen, one of the first sort of female press officers, and a great positive influence for me when I was first working in Formula One. And and we, you know, sheltering ourselves in our press releases from the rain, and we looked across and there were a bunch of the, the Italian drivers, wives and girls, friends all looking frightfully glamorous they were affectionately known I say stress affectionately known as the the stitch and bitch club because they'd all they'd all gather together and gossip and have a chat and that the stitch came because back in those days very often it was the driver's wives or press officers like muggins here who ended up sewing patches onto their ovals when you got new sponsors and that kind of thing and and we looked across at these glamorous women and there's annie and i just you know and and kind of looked at each other and said we're in the wrong part of this aren't we this is not glamorous at all not at all
0: actually one of the questions that i like to ask is at what point did you realize your job wasn't glamorous at all
2: (laughs) (laughs) Day day one when they presented me with a pair of boys shorts that were far too big and a shirt that came down to my knees and said there you go there's your team gear get on with it <laughs> like oh great <laughs> right, I'm not here to be glamorous am I obviously
0: oh we know it's not it's fine and the, and the
2: shirt down to your knee thing still happens I can tell you that that's for sure <laughs> that's when the needlework skills came actually I never bother with the needlework I just cut the bottom off with a pair of scissors and tuck it in Thankfully, that was the days of, of, you know, big belted cinched in trousers and stuff. So uh, that was my uh, excuse for it looking vaguely fashionable. That was the best I could do.
0: (laughs) You made it work. Brilliant. Yeah, I don't know what my excuse now is. I think I can just try and wear really high trousers. I'm not even going to (laughs) try. Yeah, it's a great colour, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) What about... um... I always think motorsport is very competitive and I'm not necessarily a competitive person when it comes to external factors. I'm very competitive for myself. I'm very driven. But I find that I absorb the spirit of competition that surrounds me and I end up applying it to my job, which doesn't necessarily have a competition with the other teams. But I very much find myself doing that. How do you have have you felt that spirit of competition throughout your career and, and how have you dealt with it?
2: Oh, I felt that way before my career ever came about. I, I came out of the womb competitive, I think. You know, I was—I wanted to win every game at parties. I wanted to be fastest in the, you know, egg and spoon race. I'm, I'm just a competitive beast. So, yeah, I mean, you know, back in those early days of physically taking your press release to the media centre, I prided myself on being first person there. Yes, done it again. I'm the first person in the media centre with the, with their press releases. And so, I mean, to me that's I love competition I am a very competitive person I love that competitive aspect of it I love part of being a team whether that was actually working within a racing team or or now working you know in in a media team and I think you know obviously when you're working for a racing team you want your cars your drivers to do the best as I said there is that bottom level competition between you know getting to the media center first of all and I think even now as a as a, as a journalist and as a reporter, I you know, I was so determined when I started doing television. I wanted to get the first interview with Eddie Jordan when Jordan, my former team, won a Grand Prix, which I did. And I told Eddie beforehand he was dead if he gave that interview to anybody else. Um, and I remember ITV's final race in, in 2009, when 2008, 2009, when Lewis won his first championship, um, 2008. Um, again, I was absolutely determined to get the first interview with him, and that was a proper. I mean, if you look at the shots now, it was lobbing it down with rain. It was before the days when all of the drivers were brought to a media pen, and it all happens in a you know a far more organised manner. Back then, you, you, the top three drivers would be brought to the pen, and it was elbows out for the rest of them. And obviously, uh, Lewis hadn't finished on the on the podium, so so I was. Skulking around after him, following him around, making sure that, you know, I could get that that first interview. So and that was something I'd always done as an ITV reporter. One of the guys I worked with, my my producer, Steve Alders, would be he would be my spotter. So I would get word um, from Steve as to which entrance the driver was coming through the paddock. And you'd have to casually just stroll off looking like you weren't going anywhere and again this is before the drivers were brought to the reporters at this point we went to find the drivers and it was important to get to them first or early because you know what racing drivers are like once they've told the story four times they're getting bored of talking about it and, and you don't get you don't get such a good interview so I'd get word from my um steve would say okay i think he's i can see a bike approaching from such and such a he'd say that to to the guys in the truck the producers in the truck they'd send through to me the word and i'd have to subtly sort of slope off as if i was just going for a casual stroll hoping because a lot of the other reporters would follow me around because they knew that I had this system of finding out where the drivers were. So, so I'd have to subtly sort of stroll off and hope that they they didn't all follow me. And I always had big battles with with Kai Abel, who was the did the same job as me for for RTL, who um you know always thought that she he should definitely have first dibs at any of the German of the German-speaking drivers, and was really pissed off with me if I got to Michael Schumacher before he did. Oh, I had to suffer the wrath of Kai on on several occasions. But so yeah, yeah, that I don't have that anymore in in touring cars because obviously, uh, you know, we are the the prime TV station. The drivers always come to me first. So I, I think I've earned that right now, though. After all these years of chasing after them, it's about time the buggers came to me. Too freaking
0: right! They should know what's good for them. um actually that that leaks beautifully to what I'd also like to ask you which is success and how do you define success for yourself is it getting getting that interview each time and and keep getting it
2: I think it it probably is I think it was I was thinking about this before we started chatting and it's not something I've actually spent a lot of time consciously thinking about what, what is my own success? How do I define my own success? I guess on a broad level, the fact that I'm still here several decades, um, I won't give the number, but after I first walked into the, you know, the Formula One paddock as a very naive, slightly scared young girl or young woman, the fact that I'm still here, I'm still being employed, I'm still earning a living, I guess that in itself is... Probably is is my my biggest feeling of, of success because as you know it is a so a very competitive industry throughout. It's an industry a lot of people want to work in. So I guess I must be doing something right in in the fact that I'm I'm still gainfully employed and you know paying my mortgage and feeding my dog through it. So that really is the is the ultimate success. I think is is the longevity of of my career. I think and I guess there've been little you know, all those little milestones along the way. But as I said at the beginning, it's not something I've really spent much time re- reflecting on. I think, I don't know whether other people do, it's just kind of not really my way, I don't think. I think
0: a lot of the reasons why people think about success at the moment, I think there's a tendency to defi- to try and define your goals and try and define, you know, what, what dream are you going to chase next, which is, I think is probably quite recent actually. As far as motorsport is concerned, I think it's because we see success so well-defined. You know, you get to climb on a podium and you get to pick up a a trophy. So you see success right in front of you. And then you have to decide, well, if I'm not part of that podium, what is my success?
2: Despite being a competitive person, that's never been part of my nature, possibly to my detriment in some ways. You know, I see people who they've got a clearly defined path of what they're going to do and how they're going to get there. It's just never been my way. I think I just instinctively move along from one thing to another. And that process has served me very well. I I think the only real hiccup was when ITV announced that they were pulling out of Formula One and suddenly I had no job. And that was the first time I'd really had to sit down and think, what are you, what are you going to do? How are you going to earn a living? What do you want to do with the rest of your working life? The first time I'd ever made that conscious decision, that was when I set up my media training company because I became aware of the fact that working in in TV, broadcasting is slightly precarious. You're at the whim of other people. It's out of your control. And I felt it was important to have something that was within my control. But even with my own company, you know, I business plan. Never done one of those I I just kind of blob along it's it's wrong I know it's wrong I know the theory of it you're supposed to set yourself targets and but I, I'm just kind of, I just blob along. And to be honest, I'm generally running to keep up with myself from a work perspective. It's only when it gets to the winter that things quieten down a bit and, and all those jobs that you're supposed to do and were supposed to do five years ago, like update your website and do your marketing material. And, you know, I think, oh, I really should get on with those. But but then more media training work comes in and, and it's like, Quick, Yes, I can focus on that instead. So, yeah, that's just the way I've I've always operated. And it's not really, you know, it's not really done me any harm. It's, it's served me pretty well, I think. Not to be advised, some big <laughs> mentor would say. Set yourself goals. Set yourself targets. Oh, I think do you and see where it goes, definitely. <laughs> I just think if you go through... My theory has always been if you go through life with blinkers on, with a with a real target for what you want to do, you miss opportunities that come in. And that's how my career has evolved, is opportunities. You know, I got involved in the magazine because through some friends, I met a lady who was editing the magazine at the time. You know, through working there, I met Tony Jardine, who said, do "You want to do this?" It, so it, it's it's always been opportunities that have that have come my way. And I think if I'd had blinkers on, thinking, "Right, I'm doing this for a year and a half, and then I'm going to do that," maybe I wouldn't have had my eyes open to those opportunities. Or is that just my way of excusing my lack of planning? <laughs> No,
0: well, it sounds very convincing. You sold it to me. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, "Oh, I hope I haven't had blinkers on." No, that's a good point. Actually, I'm fairly certain. I, I'm I'm very good at looking out for opportunities. It's those signs, isn't it? I hate it when you you get a sniff of something and you ignore it. That's that's just a waste. so There've been, I, there's I,
2: been I... times in my career when I've been kind of thinking feel like doing something what what i'm gonna do but you know i'll stick my head back in the sand i'm um i'm very good for sticking my head in the sand and, and procrastinating and then ultimately something's come along it's like that's why i didn't make a decision because it's been made for me now because this opportunity has come my way so it's worked So you could flip that as well and just
0: said, you know, you didn't have the gut feeling. It didn't feel quite right. So you knew something else was coming. (laughs) Talking about work so much, how do you actually balance it with the rest of your life?
2: Do you have a work-life balance? And how would your friends say the same thing? I think my friends have all got used to the fact that I'm going to miss a lot of things from, you know, March to November. My family have got used to family weekend right let's go through the racing calendar and, and and that's got more complicated now I've got nieces and nephews who are working age and and have their own lives and jobs that involve weekend work as well and uh, and and with friends you know it's 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 all that most of them have ever known me doing so it is it is what it is I mean I don't feel like I'm missing out no, that's not true. I do miss out on things. I'm aware of the fact I miss out on things. But, you know, life's all about compromises, isn't it? You if you want to have every weekend off and go to festivals and go to parties and, you know, go over the road. I'm lucky to have a little polo club in my um, in my village, you know every weekend. My dog spends more time at the polo than I do because she'll, you know, a girlfriend who she'll go and stay with on race weekends will take her there. So she has a better social life in the village than I do. But yeah, that's, it is, it is what it is. It is what it is.
0: Fair enough. What about stress, which I suspect might come from when you're overworking, over overloading yourself? But do you actually experience stress? Do you, and how do you deal with it?
2: I quite like stress, actually. I quite like. I think I perform at my best when I when I've got that that edge. You know, I can remember back in my Jordan days, and I was the media department back then. I mean, okay, teams were a lot smaller when I joined Jordan. I think I was employee number forty seven. And I was the the media department. You know, I did all the sponsored garage tours. I, I, you know, you you had to multitask then. So doing the the launch, and I used to love my launches. And 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 Eddie was brilliant to work with on that score because he loved the drama and he loved the theatre of it. And so we did great things. Like you know, I remember when when Peugeot came on board as our as our engine supplier, we converted what at the time was an empty part of the factory. Into a French cafe style bistro and and we stung hung um you know star cloth all around it and had this very theatrical launch and and it was it was bloody hard work when you're doing all of that on your own and that includes photocopying you know the the the, the press pack as it was at the time. I remember the relief when Eddie agreed to stump up the budget that I could actually send that off somewhere else to get the photocopies done because back in the day. I'd be photocopying it off, stapling it, shoving it in the packs, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So running downstairs, making sure that the photographers were getting the shots of the new car, all of that kind of stuff. But the that, that time was just brilliant because down in the workshop, the boys were all working till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning as well. So it was really, really long hours. You're not allowed to do them now, but there was a real you know if you hadn't done at least five all-nighters before the start of the season quite frankly you're a bit of a jesse so i kind of bought into that and i i enjoyed the the stress of it and then it would get to the big day of the launch and you're just juggling you've got plates spinning all over the place and i'd then go into kind of swan mode trying to look serene on the outside as the journalists were all arriving and then dashing off bangs. Like, <laughs> back out being all serene again and I loved it and still now I find you know I'm I've mentioned earlier on I'm one of life's great procrastinators I'll put things off till the last minute and then I've got a pressure and I'm thinking to myself why are you sat here at half past eight at night if you would started writing this training session at 10 o'clock this morning you know you could be sitting with your feet up in front of the telly now but it's just it's it's not the way I I work I like having that little bit of stress having that that little bit of pressure I do.
0: Actually, hearing you describe it that way reminds me, I love that bit. Unfortunately, I think I tend to go a bit beyond that, which is not so great. But one of the things I was taught really early on, actually, was you don't run. You never run in front of the rest of the paddock. You wait to run the corner and then you sprint.
2: Yeah. You never, never run in the paddock. It makes it shows that you're, uh, yeah, absolutely. The other thing I was told by somebody another reporter and then all the guys on the cruise that's bullshit is never carry the legs so the legs are the the stand you know the sticks that a a camera would would go on a broadcast camera someone said never never carry the sticks never carry the sticks that's 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 the crew's job to do that but yeah you try that with my guys it's not my style anyway i'd much rather be one of the boys and join in and muck in with everybody can't say one of the boys anymore can we it's one of the girls really but it very much was one of the boys in my early days so actually I
0: would love to talk to you about that because and tell me if I'm wrong but I get the sense that you were the first woman doing an awful lot of things in motorsport is that true
2: there weren't many when I first walked into the Formula One paddock there were not that many girls around there were Annie Bradshaw who I mentioned earlier was there there were a handful and and literally probably one hand of of female press officers if if that the only engineer or the the engine I remember really well was a French lady called Valerie who was don't ask me what her job title was but she was something very high up at at um at Elf who were a fuel supplier for quite a few of the teams at the time. A couple of female journalists, but you know we used to have a a gathering of all of the girls in the paddock. And okay, there would be a few of them, the motorhome girls, who couldn't make it along because it was an evening gathering and they were busy doing doing supper and there were probably a couple of the journalists female journalists who who didn't come along but we would fit inside the awning of one motorhome and I'm talking an awning back in the days of a a fabric awning so on the side of a bus rather than the you know the the the, the sort of constructions that the team have now I've got a succession of pictures of, of us all and there'd be you know there'd be 20 30 girls there so we were we were few and far between and, and that's you know back in my very early days, we we were even less. So, but you just kind of blobbed on in there. In fact, my when I first, when Tony Jardine first sent me to work for, for Leighton House doing the BP work, Ian Phillips, who was then the the boss at Leighton House, um, Tony said, I've got this girl, Louise Goodman, who's gonna come and, and he said, No, I'm not, not having a girl, not having a girl, don't want a girl on the team as a press officer. Tony said, Well, no, she, she's good. I don't want a girl. And Tony said, well, you've got her. Uh, And to his credit, you know, I think it was a long time before Ian, who then went on to Jordan and actually was instrumental, along with EJ, of, of, you know, inviting me to go and work at Jordan, Um, both of whom are still friends nowadays. So uh, I think it was a long time before Ian had another male press officer, because he actually realised that there was something that as a woman I brought to the job, it was uh, which was basically, you know, I was, telling the drivers what to do, trying to get them to do stuff, sponsor appearances and that kind of thing. And, and you know, I could just cajole them. I think cut to its essence, they found it more difficult to tell me to piss off than they would have done a bloke. So, you know, and I always I always think as well, I'm five foot 10 and bossy. And I think that's probably worked in my favour in my career as well. I'm sure there are girls, and I have heard stories of girls working in motorsport who have who felt intimidated. They've they've felt, you know, put upon and they've they felt, that they've been sort of prey to sort of sexism. But I can only speak from my own experience. And other than that one with Ian Phillips, and there was one occasion when in Imola, and this is back in the Leighton House days, I was walking to go onto the grid with the team and one of the marshals there stopped me and said, no, you can't go on the grid. And thankfully, all the boys who were, I was walking with went, oh, don't challenge her. Come on, Lou. You know, she's with us and shuffle me through. And, and those really are the, you know, probably the only two instances of sexism. I don't know what people were saying about me behind my back. I don't really care. But, you know, I've, I've, I've been very lucky in that respect that I haven't been subject to it. I made it clear from the outset, you know, there was there was me and there was a girl called Henny who worked in the motorhome. And I made it clear from the outset, I'm here to work. Don't even think about it. And I think you know, once I'd kept the boys at arms bay, and they'd realized I wasn't some girly girl who was there to be pushed around, I earned their respect. And then I, you know, I was I was given their respect. So and had a had a, a good working relationship. I'd like to think with with everybody and with all of the drivers who I worked with. I struggle sometimes when I look at some of the the press. I think the relationship between drivers and PRs is different now in that the drivers seem to have a lot more control a lot more sway you know at times I'm I'm waiting to speak to a driver and I can see the the PR to my mind faffing I'm thinking just bloody tell them get your ass out there mate this is part of your job you shouldn't be bow down you know kowtowing to to that bloke and it generally is a bloke as a driver and you know just tell them get your ass out now media time get your ass out there and no you haven't finished go back in you missed that journal maybe that's just me I, i do appreciate it's a different era now it's a different media era specifically there is a lot more call on on driver's time but it goes back to what i said earlier on about being tall and bossy i think that's just that's that's my way i say do it if i didn't need you to do it i wouldn't be asking you
1: plushcare.com/weight loss Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: Your proudest moment, do you have one so far in your career? And most importantly, because I find in motorsport we move so freaking quickly that we don't take the time, did you get to celebrate it?
2: I I couldn't pick a proudest moment. I have several moments that that I remember that stand out for me. I think when I was working for a team, I I never worked for a team that won a race. So that was a kind of a, a box I failed to tick. But I do remember those moments when, when we got a podium finish and the thrill of, of that, the thrill of, you know, with Leighton House, don't ask me what year it was, but it was late 89, 90. Anyway, the car had failed to qualify in Brazil. And then we were running first and second for part of the race at the, at the following race at the French Grand Prix. of Capelli eventually finished, finished second. And that was, you know, just such a thrill. So team results were always great. Results with Jordan, you know, when we got drivers on the podium again, they were brilliant. And then I think when I started working in broadcasting, you know, getting that first interview with Eddie Jordan, that was a big moment. I remember my very first Grand Prix working with ITV and I was so nervous. I had no, I had no, or had very little broadcast experience. I'd done a little bit of work with RTE, the Irish um tv station that was covering formula one at the time and they just gave me a microphone and said listen can we like, come down to you every now and then in the jordan garage and you can give us an update on what's going on but you know when i started working for itv they, they they kind of gave me a microphone and said off you go and i chatted james allen was a great help he'd been doing working for for espn um and gave me some tips and pointers the biggest bonus was that i knew the drivers i'd been around the paddock i worked with them all like you know in teams alongside them or rival teams, but they, they knew me, they could see I was nervous. And, and on the, the Melbourne, our first grumpy was in Melbourne and I was doing an interview on the grid with Eddie Irvine, who I'd worked with as he was one of my, the drivers I worked with at Jordan and, and Irv was kind of slumped down on the grass um, on the sort of fan side of the, of the track um, of the, of the grid. And I thought, if I ask him to stand up, I'm going to get one of those. I'll just sit down alongside him and do the interview that way. Um, and afterwards, Neil Duncanson, who was our boss at the time, said that was that was exactly what you want, Louise. A different style, a different way of doing it. Just that, that cat. And I thought, oh, oh, that was that was that was good. Then. So I I always remember that. And a lot of it centered around, as I said, results. You know, and getting getting good interviews with drivers that I'd worked with. I remember my interview with with um, Rubens in Germany when he won the Grand Prix. You know was it was a special one that one with Lewis who's not a driver that I'd ever worked with I you know didn't have a a close relationship with him as I perhaps did with some of the others you know that was but but getting that was the ITV finale we were going out on a high it was the first time we'd ever bloody well had a British world champion in the, the entire time that we were covering the sport so getting that last interview was was really important and Jensen's Jensen's first win as well that will always stick with me just because he's such a lovely bloke and he'd been waiting such a long time um and it was just uh, yeah you feel you build a relationship with people I think a lot of my work or the way that I work as as a reporter I'm not so a interested in or be knowledgeable about the technical side of things. I obviously you have to have a technical knowledge so that you know what you're talking about, but it's not what gets me excited, it's not it's not what lights my fire. I like the personalities. And and I think in order to get personalities out of people, you you have to build some kind of you know working relationship with the drivers. It makes them more relaxed, you'll get more out of them. There was one occasion actually with Eddie Irvine when at the Hungarian Grand Prix he told me and I can't remember exactly what it was he told me but as he was saying it that the press officer in me was saying oh my god you shouldn't be telling me this and the reporter was going brilliant oh I've got something bigger there and afterwards Eddie got a proper bollocking from Ferrari about it and he said I forgot Lee I forgot I was just talking to you Sorry, terrible northern Irish accent but he just because we knew each other well he was just shooting the shit with me he kind of forgotten that you know this was this was going to be broadcast so I got a really good little nugget of an interview I'm sorry it got him into trouble but it was a brilliant little scoop for, for ITV that you know that he shouldn't have given me
0: I work exactly the same it's actually really nice for me to hear you say all those things because I recognize myself in that and I'm the saying I understand the technology I'm knowledgeable on it because that's my job but I'm, I'm here for the people yeah. I really am yeah
2: and the racing as well. I love the racing. I genuinely love the racing. I genuinely get yeah. excited about it. You know, working in the British Touring Car Championship now, I am regularly, I'm jumping up and down and shouting at the television, don't you bloody well, don't part. you know, I, I get involved and engaged in. It's a different style of racing in, in touring cars and in the support races that we get in touring cars as well. It's a lot more elbow to elbow. It's proper rubbing his racing kind of kind of style and there's a lot of overtaking it's short races it's you know it, it's it's i always describe formula one is is a an engineering championship and british touring car championship is a is an entertainment series so that that for me is the difference but it, but it's it's just it is exciting and i am jumping up and down and so yeah there's a lot of thrill comes out of that as well and then you get lost in the moment of it with people and seeing their emotions i i once a year pretty much every year since i've been working in the btcc i'm standing there when the championship winner comes into part ferme saying to myself don't cry don't cry don't cry don't cry you know because i can when you see their emotions pouring out of them it's you've got to maintain that professionalism and that and that that balance you're still there to do your job not hug and kiss them and say oh that was bloody brilliant mate but you you know those those emotions you, you you connect with them 100% and it's part of my job to to draw those emotions out of people as well because that's what people want to see the real nobody wants to see boring bland drivers giving us PR bullshit it's not entertaining it's not entertaining for me as a fan and it's you know it's not entertaining the kind of entertainment that I want to provide to, to people watching the programs I'm involved with so yeah
0: I get, oh, I'm relating 100%. Also, the thing is, it's a lot easier to shout at the television about someone overtaking somebody when you know them both. You know, you literally, they're your mates and you can see them. You know exactly what they're thinking and how they're going about racing. And you more often than not, you know what they're going to do next as well. You know their characters, what they're more likely to do, who's going to have a go. To be fair, we've discussed the highs. Do you have any low moments? And I hope... A way of climbing out of them and overcoming them.
2: I mean there there have been low moments there have been a few you know low moments related to the racing. I was in Imola in 1994 and that's a weekend that everybody who was there will remember. Um just the weirdest weekend that started actually with one of my drivers Rubens Barcellos having a having a huge shunt and obviously then Roland was was killed on the Saturday and Erton died on the Sunday. So that was a a tricky weekend for everybody, some more so than others, but you know, it just the whole weekend was was the oddest atmosphere. And so that will always stick with me as a as a memorable weekend for all the the wrong reasons. I think other other lows on a professional level, I suppose it wasn't a low so much as a Challenge my first year working as a broadcaster. I was very mindful of the fact that I didn't really know what I was learning it as I went along in a very public environment. You know, we had millions of people tuning in to watch the shows in those days. You know, audiences have, have dissipated to a certain extent and are spread over. You know, you've got sky and and channel four and so the audiences are smaller but we had millions and millions of people tuning in so i was learning my trade in a very public place and and quite frankly at the beginning of it i wasn't very good i spoke spoke too too high too fast i got terribly nervous you know and 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 i would i'm not very good at not being very good at things and and i would go home and cry thinking Jesus that's embarrassing I'm really shit and I also felt like I'd lost my home I'd I'd worked in Formula One for you know a reasonable amount of time at that point but I'd always had a home it was either in the Leighton House motorhome or it was in the Jordan motorhome suddenly I didn't feel like I belonged in any of those team garages and motorhomes but I didn't feel like I belonged in the TV compound either because I didn't I hadn't I didn't know all the people. I didn't feel like I was truly part of that world. Luckily, Martin Brundle was in exactly the same position as me because we both, he was the driver at Jordan in my final year there. So he was one of the last drivers that I worked with as his press officer. We made the switch over at the same time. So we would have conversations about, oh, we don't know where to go now. Where do we go to have a coffee? Because I still had that odd feeling walking into, you know, McLaren, like, come and have a coffee here. But I was like, I'm going to McLaren, it just it just didn't feel right. It, so so that first year was was tough. And I remember when we got to the end of it, we all went out and, and had a sort of team dinner. Um, all of the the crew from ITV and and I felt like I was finding my feet by that point. And you know, it's like yeah, I'm on, I'm on the road here. And, and there was a big party. Um, it was in um, Portugal. The season Portugal, Spain, Spain. And um, there was a big party, Formula One party. I went along, and some drunk mechanic came up to me. And and said, "Oh, you, you that guy? Just to tell you, my wife thinks you're shit. She turns the volume down whenever you come on." And I and I luckily, had he said that to me halfway through the season, I would have been really upset. But, that, but at that point, and particularly having just come out of a, a team dinner when the boss had praised it all and and you know noted, I know for some of you it's been a difficult year. You started, so I was like, I just thought, I don't give a what your wife thinks. Bleep that bit out my boss is happy with what I'm doing and so that so that was a that was a a professional low point as well and and on a very very personal level the loss of my partner John was a was very much a a low point as you can imagine in in life and in work And, and the two were kind of centered around each each other because he he worked in Formula One as well so so that was that was a tough time but I have to say as well that was one of those times when Formula One wraps its arms around you when when you need it very much so and that was very much one of those times when I was very aware of the fact I was in the arms of a loving caring family both in the paddock and and from from ITV as well who were all absolutely brilliant with me you've
0: touched on something that actually I think might be the thing I love most about motorsport and I wanted to ask you how you felt motorsport to me is a family we're a big messy circus but it's family.
2: It is, and I walk into the Formula One paddock now, and because I'm not in the Formula One paddock so often, I can see some of the, you know, some of the some of the youngsters who are just starting out haven't got a clue who I am, and why the hell should they? I'm I'm not in the paddock on a on a very regular basis. I'll do maybe two Grand Prix in the paddock a year. I can see them look at me, thinking, "Who who the heck's that woman?" When I stick my head into their, you know, into their their team building, and and then the team boss will walk out. The team boss who was like a number two mechanic when I first knew him so you know and there is that like yeah yeah you do know, we're all still here you know Lindy Redding who who, who you know well who you know the the, the, the doyen of the of the sort of catering companies in Formula One absolute taste you know Lindy and I sort of started out together so we'll get together in Melbourne every year and have a glass of champagne and celebrate yeah it's a, that's another year that we've done together and so yeah though I think those I I don't know all of the younger members of the family but but the older members of the family are the ones who I grew up with. And there is still very much that that feeling of of yeah, yeah. And you'll see them jumping around. And also, you know, you walk into I remember going to Le Mans for the first time working at Le Mans a few years back. And it was like, oh, bloody hell, oh, you're here. Oh, wow, you're, you're working. Oh, bloody hell, there's another person, you know, who. And it's the same, in you know, now in touring cars. There's an engineer who works in touring cars who worked at Leighton House 30 years ago. You know, so these, these people are, are still around. We, we still see each other. And I love, I do love that aspect of it. I love that too. I feel like you get given the keys. It's almost, I wouldn't, I don't want to call it
0: a membership because that sounds too exclusive, but you're like given the keys to something. And I know I haven't been at touring cars, British, British all world touring car race in about 10 years. But I know when I walk in, I'll know people either from when I was working there or someone that's come over from, from F1 more recently.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, and we are never, we're never stronger together than when something bad happens. Unfortunately, I wish that wasn't the case, but that, yeah, then you really feel it. Definitely. absolutely. I'd like to ask you about social media because it's a big part of motorsport these days, partly how, you know, it gets broadcasted out to the world, but also just in our daily lives, how we use it. We're all on our freaking phones and, but yeah, how, what what's your
2: take on it? How do you use it or not use it? It's a bit of a double-edged sword for me because obviously it, With my media training hat on, I am 100% aware that social media is a a, a necessary and a vital and valuable tool for my clients, be they individual drivers I'm working with, organizations I'm working with, you know, racing teams or, you know, businesses outside of motorsport because I've sort of done done training across the board in, in lots of different areas. It's so important. It's massively important. Um, It is how we connect with the world to a large extent. You know, the the traditional media has has kind of lessened in its impact. I mentioned earlier on the numbers that we used to get watching our television programmes. You know, I think we, we peaked one Canadian Grand Prix at 12 million or something like that. Okay, it had overrun and we got into Coronation Street time. But, you know, we regularly got multiple millions. If we'd only got seven million people six million people watching a grand prix it was like oh shit that was a bad audience wasn't it you just don't get those numbers now because a there are a lot more sports b people get their their sport in in different ways and different age groups engage with life in different ways so so whether you like it or not social media is is here to stay it's incredibly useful um, it's incredibly important. And I will spend a lot of time in my training sessions talking about how people can use it to their benefit, how they should you know, and training people specifically for making videos for, you know, that they can use on their social media. It's, it's a very, very intimate form of contact with fans and fans want that contact. Sport like Formula One, that's got massive, great, big physical barriers between the teams, the drivers and the fans for for obvious reasons, you you know you can't let the Formula One paddock be overrun with fans um, just because nobody would ever get any work done. It's and and from you know commercial reasons as well. It's that's just not the way that it works. But but that engagement is is so important. So I am very very aware um, and and mindful of the importance and the value of social media. <sighs> when it's for myself, I'm bloody awful at it. I really <laughs> am. I'm just a bit, you know. I do. I look at Facebook. No, I, I. I think of it as work. I think of social media as as work. I have a lot of followers on on Facebook, but they're they're not people that I. I have some friends, obviously, but a lot of people I've just made contact with. I made the mistake in the, I say mistake. In the early days, I um, just had a a Facebook profile. So, of course, you're limited then with the numbers of people. I reached the 5,000 ages ago. I didn't set up a fan page early enough, which is what I should have done, which means that I can't really use it for for personal things because I I don't I'm not the kind of person who wants to share my everyday life with with everybody. And I, you know, it's just it's just the way I am. I want to do what I want to do when I'm, when I'm away from, from work. So as I say, I think of it very much as, as work. Um, I'm not the kind of person who sits there scrolling through, through Facebook. I, you know, I'll, I'll get to a racetrack and think, Oh shit, I really ought to tweet something. Oh, bloody hell. I forgot to take some pictures to put on my Instagram, even when I'm doing my training. So, you know, there's me, me banging on to people about the commercial value of social media it's a real case of do as to say, not as I do, because I think very often I'm too busy doing it myself. I'm too busy doing my job to actually be able to keep across my social media. I, <laughs> I now employ, I have a lovely lady called Shari, who I'm very lucky to have somebody doing my hair and makeup at the British Touring Car Championship, which is necessary because it's a full day long show. I've appointed Shari as my social media manager. So she she's following me around taking pictures the whole time and, and putting together my paper because I just I don't have the time. I'm not there to be posted pictures of myself. I'm there to to do a job. So, yeah, that's as I say, I've, Shari is now my my appointed social media manager. Sounds frightfully posh, doesn't it? But I just yeah, it's just it's just the way it is. Because I know it it's got to be done. And there is a, you know, I, I should be promoting my own business and and I should be doing more of that. In fact, one of the things I have been doing in, in, in lockdown is 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 forward planning, a little bit of forward planning. I have written some social media scripts, which I intend to film when I can, when we're out of lockdown, and just some little videos to put on my social media about media training tips and presentation skills training tips. So get me being proactive and forward planning. Um, but um yeah. That's where I am with social media. It's a kind of love-hate relationship. Uh,
0: all I heard was that you proactivi- proactively delegated. That was very
2: good. <laughs> yeah, but very much after the event. I should have been doing it years ago. Should have been doing it years ago. And I also, I'm a wordsmith, so I'll I'll, I'll put together a tweet, you know, and, and 20 minutes later, I'm still working on the punctuation and thinking, oh, can I phrase that? It's an immediate thing, you know. I, it's. It's not the best
0: for wordsmith, I don't think.
2: No, no, I spend far too long, as I say, trying to kind of craft the perfect. And then I look at other people's tweets and think, oh, it's much better than mine. You know, because I'm I'm, again, I'm 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 not practicing what I preach. I'm not being myself. I'm not being having that, you know, one to one contact and, and just being me with it. I think my job as a reporter, I feel like it's. I am there as the means through which the fans get to see the drivers. I'm not there to be on television. That I think is the difference. I've I've still got a, I love my job. I love what I do. I'm not shy about it in that respect, but it's not, it's not about me. It's about the people I'm speaking to. So I think putting it out there to people, it's about me. This is about me. It just, it's, it's just not, not who I am. Everyone's different in that way. Yeah, jazz
0: Actually, talking about everyone else, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was to anyone that's looking in who perhaps looks at your career and would love to do the same. What advice would you give anyone these days?
2: Oh, this is such a tricky one, and as you can imagine, I've been I've been asked it quite quite a few times. That's not to be rude about your question; it's a very relevant question because I, I think it's important to try and help other, particularly girls, because I think it is it still is. You know there is still this perception out there that that motorsport is for boys, and it's not the people within the sport, it's people externally who who think that. So I do think it's important to try and and help um other people per se, but other girls in particular who 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 want to get involved. and my my main advice to everybody is you've just got to get stuck in there and do it and make yourself useful, really. You know, it's not going to come to you. You need to go out there and find it. You're not going to walk. I was very lucky. I, my first job in motorsport was in Formula One. That's not going to happen nowadays. It's a, it's a different world we live in. It's a different sport. Um, and it's a different world from a, an employment perspective as well. So, you know, just get yourself experience, go to local racetracks, make friends, meet people. It's definitely a bit about what you know, but it's a lot about who you know as well. It's about contacts. You know, we've talked about the fact it's a family and, you know, it's about knowing people in that family. Um, it's about making contacts in that family. And just then you'll be in their minds. I'm sure there are other people in, in other areas, you know. I'm not suggesting that if you're an engineer, you need to have the right qualifications, you need to have the CV, you need to have the, the university degree that that states you're capable of, of doing the job. But certainly I think for 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 the side that that I work in, it's about just getting stuck in there and, and making yourself useful and making those contacts and saying, you know, if you wanted to, to PR, PR, go to a, a national touring car race, or, or sorry, a national race and find out, you know, which teams maybe don't have a press office and which teams would like a bit of a hand. And then you can do some bits and bobs. From them. then then you've got stuff you can show to people. You've got a foot in the door and you've got a body of work that, that you can show to people. I think that really is the... The best tip that I can give to people, based on my experience, which, as I say, I'm aware is is slightly out of touch in terms of um, employment methods these days and how things come about. But I think that's that's still gonna gonna stand you in in good stead. You know, I think having somebody within a, a race team, say, or a mate of mine's interested, is always going to get looked at closer than another CV arriving through the post. Which I again, mean, there are lots of
0: them that do. And having some experience in, you know, showing that you've been showing that you're not after Formula One, that you're actually willing to graft. You want to in work in motorsport? In motorsport, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, we talked earlier on about you can't be a fan. Yes, you've got to be a fan of the sport, but you're not there to be a fan. So, you know, I used to get people letters from people. Oh, I just love Formula One. I really want to work in Formula One. What do you want to do? Oh, I don't care. I just want to work in Formula One. You know, that that's not going to work. You're not there to do a job. You're there because you want to stand and go, oh my God, look, it's Lewis Hamilton. Oh my God, look, it's, you know, give me Rikin nobody's going to employ you on that basis. They want to see that you're, you know, it it is long hours. We we talked about the fact it's long hours, it's hard work. You've got to prove that you're capable of doing it because there's a lot of people who want to work in this industry. So you you've got to prove that you've you know, you've got the backbone for it.
0: What about advice that you've been given? Is there something that sticks out that you've carried to this day?
2: Neil Duncanson, my my boss at uh, at, at North One TV, when I first came in, so he used to say because I I was very nervous, I talked very high, and Neil would say to me, Louise, low and slow, low and slow. And it's I will still find myself saying that to people sometimes in my in my media training sessions when they're when, when they're getting very excited, look a bit first getting a bit nervous, and low and slow. That's the the bit of advice that always stands out for me. That's for sure. I think you know the rest of it. I just kind of made up as I went along. So there was no sort of standout thing that somebody had said. If you do it this way, it'll it'll work out for you.
0: Low and slow. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that, please.
2: That's <laughs> uh, that's good one i definitely go high pitch as soon as I'm nervous or excited. Everybody so. does. Everybody does. When I work in my media training, it's you know, it's one of those tools. If you want make something to make it sound exciting, you talk kind of faster. But if you want gravitas, you go low and slow, and then it sounds a lot more important. It also
0: sounds bloody
2: sexy. <laughs> I'm getting shivering. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. I haven't lost it.
0: I actually cannot believe it. I've got my page in front of me just to make sure that I don't miss any topic. And this is the last question. What are you looking forward to?
2: This is going to sound terrible. Retiring. It's a little way off yet. But one of my great loves in life is travel. I love traveling. And that was one of the aspects of Formula One that I always loved. I got to travel. And yes, I didn't get to hang out at every race I went to, but I made sure that over the course of the years I was doing it, I, I spent time in the places that I was at. There's loads of places in the world I want to go and see. There's loads of places still on my list I want to tick off. So that's that's kind of, you know, I love life at the moment. I love working, don't get me wrong. And, and okay, I'm getting on a bit, but I'm not that old yet. I'm in a position to retire. I don't really have any, because as I said earlier on, I'd never set myself any when I'm 25, I want to be doing this, when I'm 30, I want to be doing that. I've, I've never set myself those goals. So I don't really have those, those goals that I'm that I'm working towards. The thing that I think, oh, that would be brilliant is, oh, God, when I can go to Syria, when I can do those bits of South America, when I can, you know, go to Cambodia, I haven't been to and I, I have this little game I play with myself, whereas I have to have, been to more countries than I have years of age. Trust me, it's it's getting more and more difficult as my years of age go up. But I, I actually counted it up with a friend the other day. I'm two ahead. I'm two countries ahead. So I've got to I've got to maintain that. I've got a couple of years in hand, which given this year is a good thing because I, I don't think I'm going to be ticking any new countries off the list this year. But um that's um I, I would love to be able to maintain that till my dying day. If ever you've stated a goal, that's a good one. It's a good one, isn't it? Think of all those beaches I can visit. Lovely.
0: That's brilliant. I can't believe I'm saying that, but that's it. That was all my questions. Thank you so so much for doing this with me. My
2: pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And good job, can I just say? My my professional opinion. I think you did a lovely job. I bet you don't broadcast oh, that bit. <laughs> I'm gonna press the stop.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to chat to me for Racing Lives, Louise. It absolutely made my day my microphone misbehaved there at the end so to clarify I said something along the lines of I'm embarrassed now and I'm going to have to stop which is completely true I've admired Louise for years she is so good at everything she does has an incredible career she's deeply knowledgeable about motorsport and is one of the nicest people I've met in this sport as I'm sure you sensed while listening to our chat so to receive praise from Louise as I begin my podcasting journey is a big moment. Thank you once more, Louise, for being so generous with your time and your story. As ever, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review if that function is available on that platform. It helps people find us, but it also means so much and you know I'll be reading all of them. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is pandea, P-A-N-D-E-A. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week.